0: Welcome to the Open Deeply podcast, where guests open up and dive deep into the vulnerable experiences that shape them. We believe life storytelling has power, the power to heal and inspire others. Your journey towards finding your sexual and personal truth starts now. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron and Kate Lorie.
1: Welcome to Open Deeply. I'm Sunny Megatron, a certified sexuality educator and relationship coach, and my co-host is sex-positive psychotherapist, Kate Lurie. Open Deeply is a podcast about life stories, and in these stories, we crack open our outer shells and go straight for the center of what makes us tick. Each of our guests is featured in two episodes. The first is devoted to the guests telling their stories, zeroing in on the pivotal things that shape them throughout their life. And the second episode is devoted to analyzing those experiences and parsing out how they fit not only into our guests' big picture, but also how they weave into the common threads that connect us all. Our guest today is Lenora Clare, who's back for our second conversation with us. In the first, she told us her life story, and this episode gives us an opportunity to unpack and ask deeper questions. But before we get started, I'll give you a brief reintroduction to Lenora. Lenora Clare is a survivor of multiple violent crimes, an advocate, activist, activist Entertainment industry professional, CEO of Lenora Clare Consulting LLC, and member of the Los Angeles District Attorney Crime Victims Advisory Board. After becoming the fixation of a dangerous stalker, Lenora began to speak out on behalf of 7.5 million U.S. stalking victims who are without resources and living in fear. Lenora's case has been featured on 48 Hours, Dr. Oz, Crime Watch Daily, CBS News, and a lot more. Vice even gave her the moniker, the Erin Brockovich of stalking. Lenora dedicates her time working to change stalking laws and procedures. She's worked closely with Congressman Adam Schiff to change legislation, plus directly with victims, helping them obtain restraining orders and serving as a human shield in court. She also lectures on risk minimization at schools and in the media. And Lenora has accomplished all of this while dealing with her own stalker, eventually taking measures to capture him herself, leading to his successful conviction in 2018. Lenora's teamed up with Jess Gilbert to form the Innovative Justice Alliance to propose legislation and develop methods of prevention in the technology space. She also works as a TV and film production consultant advocating for victims to ensure respectful depictions of their most traumatic and vulnerable moments. You can read Lenora's full bio in our episode description, as well as find links to more of the important work and the activism that she does.
2: All right. But before we get started, I need to remind you that Open Deeply Podcast is not therapy nor a replacement for therapy. Please know this episode has themes of stalking and emotional abuse. If you catch yourself becoming emotionally overwhelmed by this episode's content, please get support. Call a friend, therapist, or an emotional support hotline, such as 800-273-TALK, 8255. All righty. So, Lenora, are you ready for a few questions? I am,
3: but after the intro, I was like, geez, I wish I could just listen to Sunny and Kate and not have to do any real work on myself. I wish wish it was that easy. Geez. I guess it's not. I guess I have to keep, uh, you know, putting in the work. But all right, right, let's do
0: it.
2: (laughs) Well, you know, maybe you can just chill out with us and answer a few questions before you get back to changing the world. All righty. So, you know, when you were a kid, when you were describing your childhood, you described yourself as Wednesday Adams, you know, a Wednesday Adams weirdo. You grew up with a urologist, psychiatrist, father with an eccentric household complete with Oscar, the anatomical penis, Herpes yeah. love bug, and a candy stone museum in yeah. the garage. Yeah. yeah. And you've maintained this kind of Fellini-esque life. Yeah. But is there anything from your childhood that you would like to get back
3: well, my father would be the the, the obvious one. I, I I miss him every day. He was such an incredible person. Um, but other other than that, you know, growing up in the Valley of the Eighties was such a magical time. And if I could just take a time machine and go through that mall and like drink that orange Julius and like go back, I you know, I'd I'd love to just get that back because I I really I really thought that's how life was going to be, and it was such a such an awesome time. So. Um, yeah, if I could get my my dad and just, you know, a slice of the, the 80s in the valley back, I'd love it.
2: Yeah, it sounds like it was very carefree. Yeah, I mean, well, the, the time
3: was carefree. Like some of the stuff that was going on in the home wasn't carefree. But yeah, it, it was like for people, you know, just think about like fast times and valley girl. Like that was the va- I mean, I was I was a little kid at that time. But it was that was what was like around me. And the valley was like just, you know, kind of sprawling and suburban. And there was always like somebody's house that a pool was being built. So you could like hop the fence and skateboard in the pool being built. It was like very much that all the time. It was just kind of like endless summer, good times, hanging at the mall. You know, it was, it was really fun. Like I look back and I'm just like, God damn it, I don't. You know, especially people like a group in colder climates, or you know, you didn't. I I would see bands like The Cramps when I was like thirteen all the time, and I didn't realize that that wasn't something that like everybody could just do. So yeah, it was it was awesome.
1: Oh, so you know, revisiting a little bit of what your father did for the listeners' behalf. You know, he was a urologist, a celebrity psychologist who specialized in sex therapy, psychiatrist,
3: a psychiatrist,
1: and he specialized in, you know, sex therapy, yeah. pioneer gender affirmation surgeries, and obviously you grew up in a very sex-positive household. Oh, yeah. And one of the things you mentioned in our last conversation was that he felt that everybody deserves to be honored. And, you know, it is plainly clear how much you loved your father. Yeah. So I've, I have a couple questions for sure. you about that. One, is there anything about the way that you shape your life that is an homage to him And also, you know, most caring parents just want their kids to be safe and happy, right? Mm -hmm. But, of course, your dad – your dad was cool. Your dad wasn't most dads. So what do you think he would say about your life today? And what do you wish you could say to him right now if you could talk to him in the present?
3: Yeah. I know he was always, like, weirdly disappointed I didn't follow in medicine, which is, like, so insane to me. He always sort of thought that that – he always said, like, oh, yeah, we'll open up practices next to each other. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? But (laughs) – (laughs) Like, I think of him daily, and honestly, all the work that I do with crime victims, it's like he also did forensics. So, he was also a police surgeon in New York before we came to LA when, when I was born. And so, we did a lot of forensics in the house because if you can, you know, combine. Surgical knowledge, and, and he fully like went through the police academy. He had a badge. Like it's kind of weird. Uh, it was just like a hobby. of <laughs> like, so it was so strange to describe. And so he would do friends on cases. So you know the idea of working with people and helping them. And my my dad did a lot of pro bono work. He also um, helped open up clinics for sex workers in Mexico in the, like the late seventies before I was born. Like this this stuff that nobody was wow. really doing. So wow. yeah, and so like having that for your dad. And my dad also primarily raised us. He was largely a single parent uh, when I was growing up, which is like even more amazing. But he was doing all of that with health problems of his own. That's actually why he went from being a urologist to psychiatrist because he had so many medical problems. He's like, shit, no matter how sick I get, I can always sit on a couch and help people. So that's actually why he made the transition. But no, I mean, everything I do, he would, he would love. And it's actually really hard for me sometimes because sometimes we will be working on cases where I'm just like, oh my God, I wish he was here to talk to he just was so wonderful, and I, I mean, I really, I I think that, I think he'd I think he'd be really proud and really pleased, and you know, he'd I he he probably would be working on cases with me, to be honest. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's just it's just a shame that he he died young, so he didn't get to to do all the things that he could have done.
2: Yeah, that's true. He'd probably be part of Lenore Claire Consulting, wouldn't he? Yeah,
3: I mean, he actually did a lot of TV in the '90s. Like, he was the go-to on all those like. You know, those unfortunately they're kind of trashy in hindsight. Those like current affair, but you know, like whenever they would have um, someone be like talk about Jean Benet or OJ, like they would they would use them for that. So it's kind of funny. Like I'm I'm working on a documentary right now, and I'm it's make it's even more than therapy making me like, because with therapy, they kind of, you know, they, they go in with some lube, like there's like a, a, they go in asking you questions in like a very specific way. And when they're doing a documentary, they just kind of get into it, you know? And so you're confronting things without the way that the therapeutic way that a therapist would do it. So Mm -hmm. I'm in this like really weird space right now where I'm like really getting deep in my own head and my history and my life and the why. And it's so funny you bring this up because I'm starting to realize that so much of the choices that I've made and who I am are actually a direct reflection of who he was. But I didn't realize it because it's just second nature because you're living it. And now yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah, duh, that's, that's why. So it's been, a, it's been very eye-opening.
2: Right. It just seems like there's been so many curveballs thrown your way. But yeah. No matter how many curveballs have been thrown your way, it seems like you still are very reflective of, of how your dad lived mm-hmm. his life. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's fascinating. So, as indicated in the previous episode, you know you're this redhead bombshell. That's the Jessica Rabbit reference, and you have over 151 IQ. I don't know specifically how high, but I know you were able to get into that school magnet program where yeah. you had to have at least yeah, yeah. 151 IQ. That's right. Um, so you don't really fit into any mold. Yeah. So um, you know, but we live in a society that stereotypes. So, I was wondering, how do you manage society's attempts to stereotype you, and what what societal assumptions are hardest to manage, and is there any part of society's stereotypes of you that actually work to your advantage?
3: Oh, for sure. I mean, I think when people don't know anything about me, I think the bar is quite low. So no matter what I say or do, I then come off as impressive because they just don't expect much, so it's like (laughs) kind of awesome. (laughs) Um, I mean, it's actually, I, if anything, it's sort of disarming. It's like a wild card thing. You know, it's like I'm, I'm, I'm often othered. You know, people are just sort of like, OK, you don't fit into this archetype or that archetype. So you're other. And when you're other, that gives you freedom to be whatever the fuck you want. So it's kind of great. And a lot of times people just, you know, they'll look at me and just maybe they'll something in their life or pop culture that they'll go, oh, it's, it, she's like that. And then it's very unlikely that I'm like whatever they thought I was. And so then um, I mean, I oftentimes have people like when I'm working with politicians, they frequently say to me, oh my God, you're solution based because they just thought I was there to bitch. Right? So it's like, then I have like that conversation. So whether it's the entertainment industry or advocacy or, you know, any of the things that I'm doing, I, I really, I mean, I would love to meet somebody else that was, was similar because then it would be so nice to like share conversation and, and like, you know, how we got to do things. but. Yeah, I just kind of do my own thing. And it's it's worked out for the most part. But yeah, it is it is a little bit weird because especially like when people get my bios or stuff and, and like with hypothetically like a politician and, you know, you don't attach a photo so they don't know what you look like and they sort of like see your bio and they, they think whatever. And then like I come in and it's just, it's it's I always say that like with stalking, you know, they're really, unlike the other crimes where there's sort of like a face of that crime because the story was big with stalking, you usually want less attention and you're not doing media or you've been murdered, you know, if your case made it out there. So you're, you're not doing that stuff. So there's always, it's always been necessary to have a face of this. I'm just not the face that people wanted. Like they didn't, they didn't expect this, but like, sorry, this is who you get and it's fine. It's just whatever. So it, it's, yeah, it's been, it's, I'll just say this. I'm, I'm never bored. I'm constantly challenged. I'm constantly having to navigate something you know, I mean, I think we all are. I don't think it's unique to me. I think we all have to navigate something in whatever professional spaces we we go through. But I definitely, uh, I definitely get like a lot of curveballs. But I I find that once people realize that I'm genuine, and this is something that's so important to me, that regardless of how conservative they may be, or what they may like or dislike about me, I think I think it usually resonates. And so I'm able to connect and and do what I came to do. Yeah,
2: it sounds like you kill, kill them with Kindness, sincerity, and intellect.
3: Hope so. Yes. Try.
1: (laughs) So most people don't have the first clue on how to prevent or detour a stalker from having access to them. But you advise people on this every single day. So would you be willing to share a few safety precautions that a person might put in place to reduce that risk? Yeah, I'm so glad you bring
3: that up. And the first thing I want to say is that if this is happening to you, please do Like I see a lot of self victim blame, especially because so many of these stalking situations are a former intimate partner. And so I, I have a lot of people coming and saying, Oh, my God, you know, I, I dated this person, I let them in my life. And when that happens, I just say, look, and think of it like a dog with rabies. Like, you know, if you, you see a dog, right, or in this case, a person that you dated, and you think the dog is cute. So you pet the dog, and then all of a sudden, they start foaming at the mouth, right? That's kind of the same thing with stalking. A lot of times, you go in with the best intentions. And, you don't realize that this individual is sick or has issues. So I just always have to say that first just because it kills me when you're already having like the hardest time and I just hear so much victim self-blame. But as far as like risk minimization and and prevention, um, there's a lot that we can do. One of the things that's sort of obvious, but just needs to be said is, you know, responsibility with our social media. And I'm never saying don't exist on social media. I'm just saying post, if you, if you went somewhere, post after you've left, right? Like make sure that there's nothing but geotagging. So you're not like literally inviting someone to know where you currently are, which is something people don't realize. I also tell people, most people have no idea that for like a whole whopping dollar, you can you know, go on sites like Truthfinder, and I can find your home address, where your mama lives. I can know everything about you. So I can, I can provide a link for your listeners where they can go in individually and opt out from all of those websites. It's a really annoying afternoon, and it's really offensive that these websites do this to us. But I actually, like, I do a lot of meetings where, like, ahead of time, I'll, like, pull the person's address up, and I'll just, like, get them on Zoom, and I'll be like, so what's it like living at 1313 Mockingbird Lane? And they're like, holy shit, and they're, like, so spooked. And I'm just like, yeah, anybody can do that to you. So let's let's wipe that for you. So that's like a really important one. Also, a lot of times, you know, we talk a lot about red flags with behavior. I, I, I always tell people, like, listen to your gut. If something doesn't feel right, like, listen to that. Um, another thing that I tell people as far as if something is like maybe starting off with harassment and you don't know if it's going to turn into stalking, because that's another thing. There's a lot of gray area with the internet. You know, and there's a lot of times where there's like, there's somebody doing some behavior that doesn't feel good, but we don't know if it's going to escalate into the real world, into violence, or if they're just kind of, you know, abusing us with their words, right? So um, one of the things that I tell people is if you think that there's a possibility that this is going to escalate, your well-intentioned friends usually will say, well, just block the person. And I actually think that's bad advice because, for example, I was able to catch my stalker when he wrote me and told me he was going to kidnap me, um, which most stalkers don't tell you they're going to kidnap you. But how are you going to know that your situation has escalated? How are you going to know the threat that you're under if you just block it? So what I tell people is if it's too much for you emotionally, have a trusted friend. And, And by the way, never respond. Because the thing with this stuff is that you know a lot of people give bad advice and they go, Oh, legally you have to tell them to go away. Like, no no you don't, because what you're putting yourself because you're not gonna win. If you respond to the individual, you have the chance that they're gonna glom on harder to you if you're nice. And if you're what's perceived to be aggressive, then you risk, you know, exacerbating the situation. So it's you know, gray rock. Like just do not respond. However, you need to monitor. Another thing that's really important is should these things start to happen, you know unfortunately getting intervention can be really difficult. So I tell people right from the jump to create a timeline because you want to be as credible as possible. And you know, law enforcement, I'm married to a lawyer, so I know lawyers inside it out. Um, their love language is like facts and credibility. So create that, create that timeline where instead of just going, I don't know, they've been doing shit for months, like that doesn't help them. You have to say, like, on January 3rd, I got my first email that said this, and then you can prove an escalation. So, you know, sometimes these things do burn out when it's more on the harassment end, but definitely start that timeline and have it be as, like, full of information and details as possible because, you know, our our memories are, you know, there, especially as you get older, they get a little foggy. And and then not to mention, as as things increase, you know, when we start to sometimes trigger trauma responses, it's really hard to, like, go through old screen caps and emails. So do yourself the favor and start by creating that timeline right when the incidents start to happen.
2: Yeah, that's wise. You were once described as P.T. Barnum with boobs. (laughs) What do you think would be the ultimate circus show that you would love to put on within your lifetime?
3: I think my lifetime is a circus show. I think it was my wedding. I think I already did it. Um, I don't think I could make a bigger circus than my wedding. That was. (laughs) I'm not kidding. I mean, I had a monkey bridesmaid. I, I had mermaids in the pool. I had. I had. I had everything. I had all the. Yeah, no. The, honestly, um,
2: can you tell us a little bit more about our, about your wedding? Because you, yeah, you, did. you put everything into it, it. It
3: really, yeah. I had Morgan McMichaels from Drag, Drag Race. Um, she played Nomi Malone from Showgirls. Because my husband and I love Showgirls. My dog is named Nomi, and so like the ring exchange was, and Morgan did the Versace dress. Like it was unbelievable. And so Morgan did the ring exchange, We exchanged the rings, and then did like the Nomi hands, and that's how we like sealed our marriage. And it was uh, it was at a secret location. I'll just say it's the people who own the Magic Castle. It's their private home, and it's a beautiful 1920s estate that has a theater in it. So, like wow. everything about the grounds was, you know, the kind of place where the owners of the Magic Castle would live, right? So just this beyond enchanted, magical, secret space in LA. That's why I can't even name it. That's why I, I like literally am not allowed to name it as part of the deal of getting to do it there. And it was just, we had a full theater show. I brought in Murray Hill, who's I love Murray Hill. Murray Hill was the MC at my wedding. And Murray thought it was so funny because my father was from Brooklyn and we're Jewish and he loved Borscht Belt comedy. So I was like, Murray, you're like the homage to my dad. And, and like Murray's like, what? And then Murray kept saying, like, for two supposed straight people, this is like the queerest wedding I've ever been to. I'm like, yeah, I know that's why. That's why we work. Um, it was just, it was, it was also a sea of fabulousness. Like it was just, and unfortunately, I got to know Kate like right after the wedding, so like I'm, I'm, I'm bummed. And, and sunny, I should have, I should have just had like, I would have, like you guys should have been there in clown gear. There were
1: clowns. Some people did do yeah, clowns. yeah. Um, clowns at my wedding too. This is why I like. I you. believe it. I believe <laughs> it. It was just like. It was just the most beautiful,
3: like high-end formal freak is like the only way, like everybody really brought it. Like every single, it was just, we had Armin Ra on theremin. Like there was just a lot going on. Um, Prince Poppycock was singing for like, uh, my dress was, I can't I can't like I'm just like going over all of it. It was all it was just all too much. It was so great. I'm not I'm not doing it justice if anyone wants to go to my Instagram and look at the photos and they can see it. Otherwise, I just sound like a lunatic trying to describe it. But it really was all the things that it was really wonderful. And I yeah, just, yeah, the yeah. Pic-
2: yeah it, it's worth your time to go to Instagram mm-hmm. and check out Lenora's page because, yeah, the, the pictures are just so colorful, so gorgeous. And you can tell by just looking at people's faces that they're having the time of their life. Mm-hmm. They, everybody just looks like giddy three-year-olds, you yeah. know, just like so happy.
3: Mark Zanino yeah. made my gown. He he started working on Dynasty. It was one of the first shows he worked on. It was all custom made. He makes like all of Joan Collins' outfits. And wh- one time when I was there for one of my fittings, um, he was making making a dress for Beyonce and Joan Collins simultaneously so their dress forms were there with their name on it and I guess it was like sitting there going oh my god like what if they both walked in and we could just like talk about wigs for 20 minutes like I was just like <laughs> having this moment like even my dress was just this unbelievable work of art like that, that took like four or five months to make I was there once a week and they were getting like lace from Paris like that's what I'm saying like everything about because I never thought I'd get married I never thought there was anybody for me like that was worth getting married to and So when I found my person, I was just like, fuck yeah, we're going big. And he, my husband's like so funny and weird and chill. He just kind of like, when we were talking about the wedding, because he's, I'm, all the ways that I'm extra, he's, he's quirky, but subtle, you know? And so he's just like, whatever, as long as I have a taco bar, like whatever. So he he literally just (laughs) let me do whatever I wanted. And he's like, oh, Zuni the monkey is the bridesmaid. Cool. Like what, like he just like, let me just do all the things. So yeah, I guess the circus was, was my wedding. (laughs)
1: Oh, that is amazing. That is amazing. Like, you know, along the lines of your life being the most joyful, outrageous art, let's talk Golden Girls Gone Wild. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it became apparent to you as you were doing that art show how much bigotry there is associated with senior sex and sexuality, especially when you were talking about your partner at the time couldn't perform because the naked B. Arthur oil painting was above your bed. Yeah. (laughs) So... I want to know, you know, first, what do you make of that? And if, do you think you may later in life put on a second version of Golden Girls Gone Wild when you are in your senior years?
3: Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I've already done it twice. I also did it in Miami at the um, World Erotic Museum, which was incredible. And then three years ago, Jerry Vile from The Dirty Show, he brought me out. I did it again. And he's like, you have to call it. Golden Girls Gone Wild Sloppy Seconds. I was like, fine, okay, we'll call it Sloppy Seconds. And so I did it there too. So I've technically done it three times, and I will say this, I sold out every time. So that is like, I'm really proud of that. Um, Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll do it. The thing is, every time I'm ready to put that show to bed, like I'll, I'll have years between doing it, right? And people still send me golden girl shit all the time. Like people who were there, like so want it to come back or people who didn't, who weren't living here, didn't get to do it. So I'm sure, sh- I'm sure if some museum or gallery will have me in 40 years, I will totally do it again. Yes. <laughs> what
2: do you, can you envision yourself like being 70 or what have you? Like, what do you think you're going to be like? I when
3: you're- can't believe I'm 41 now. Like, I don't even know what happened. I don't, I don't, I mean, do you guys, I don't, I don't, I hope I get to live that long. You know, I, I'm, I'm imagining I probably have a lot of facial work and look about the same. So like that's, there's that, you know, um, my back already feels like I'm 70 cause I've herniated disc. I don't know. Like I, I honestly, I, I don't really think in terms of age, like I'm so similar. I mean, obviously I've had growth and stuff, but like my interests are pretty similar to where they were 20 years ago. And I'm imagining and. 40 that like I'll still be like you know enjoying the same stuff and still being like okay we're gonna you know have fucking clown dinner and the monkeys coming like I don't think that's gonna change I'll just be like in an older body so (laughs) I'm Mm pretty I'm pretty sure And, and my husband's the same way so I we've we've kind of agreed that we're just gonna be like weird old people and it's fine.
2: Okay. So uh, let's see. So one thing that you mentioned in the last episode that um, really stood out for me, there was just this one moment where you got kind of serious and and said, you know, I've helped a lot of people, but nobody's helped Mm -hmm. me out. I imagine that these days, a great way to support you is to support your efforts. So some of the projects that you mentioned, and correct me if I say any of this wrong, is um, number one, you have, you've, proposed that the SANE mobile unit, uh, oh, no,
3: the no, no, no. mobile so, no, no, SANE is a uh, sex assault nurse examiner. Those are the people that do the exams. Mm-hmm. There, there's no name for the mobile unit that I proposed. And that's really like in a, like, I just proposed it, there's nothing, mm-hmm. at this point, it's, an, it's a concept that I'm trying to get, like, backing for. There isn't anything that, like, people could, like, write into or vote for. It's so, like, I literally just proposed it a few weeks ago.
2: Yeah, and just to reiterate, it's this idea of mobile units being able to come. Like, if you're raped, a mobile unit could come to your home... So you could get the rape kit done because you were saying in that last episode, which blew me away. I didn't, I didn't know that that you couldn't get a rape kit done if you had been raped and you went to the hospital. Yeah, you like I would normally think that you arrive at the hospital and the first thing that happens is they do a rape kit.
3: I mean, te- like, no, no, because technically, like they could do an exam, but they're not an official a sex assault nurse examiner or with a sex assault forensic exam, like it's a very specific holds up in court kit. And only certain people have that certification to do that. And in LA alone, and LA is a big city, we only have four places. So if listeners are in a smaller city, chances are they have even fewer places to get it done, right? And the thing is, there's even times where people go to their, you know, they research and they go, okay, this is the hospital to go to. And there may not even be a nurse available, right? Because there's this national shortage. So what you're just sitting there in in your trauma, in your, you know, with everything that happened to you, just waiting for somebody to, as your evidence is degrading in your body, right? Like this is horrible to describe to people. Not to mention a lot of times you just want to be at home. You want to be at home cuddling your pet. You want, you know, that's your, where you feel safe. The last thing you want is to go to some foreign environment and wait around. Like it's just, it's not, it's not.
2: So they can do some exam, but does it hold up any kind of weight in court if it's not the formal? Right. Gift? It's
3: not the same thing. Because even things like chain of custody matter, right? There's a very specific way that you gather evidence and how it's collected and then given to law enforcement. It's a very specific protocol. And so if you have a good criminal defense attorney, they can just be like, you guys didn't do this right. There's this much margin of error. And then you're, do you see what I'm saying? Like everything with, pr- with prosecuting these cases, it really has to be to the T. So if, this is like your barrier to getting justice. What the hell are, it's like almost unconstitutional to not offer it, yeah, you know?
2: So, so I, I, I still want to stick with the question, but just now, now I'm off track and I, I want to understand this, you know, so, and I'm, I'm guessing a lot of people listening would want to understand this. So if you've been raped, the first thing you should do is go to the hospital, right? But how do you get no? You rape should, kit done? No,
3: you should go, you should Google where to get in your city the, the sexual assault forensic exam because there's like a map. I can give you a. I can give you a link to that too for your listeners, and it'll tell you where in your city the closest places to go.
2: So don't go to the hospital. Go straight to this. Go place.
3: go to whatever the designated place place or places are in your city. Correct.
2: Wow, that just seems so counter. And and what yeah. if what if um, you might have some serious health problem going on concurrently, like. Well, I mean that's you're going it's
3: going to be a hospital. So you're going it's just make sure you're, oh, make sure right. you're going like to the designated. So, exactly. Just make sure you're going okay. to the right place. And then what frequently happens is you go there and then the police are called and then they do the interview like simultaneously because other a lot of people they'll they'll go straight to the police department who will then tell them where to go. But again, like Maybe it's a few hours from the assault, and you've already had those few hours, and then you're dealing with the cops. I just want people to get in to get their exam as soon as possible while the evidence is still there, because you know these are—I I don't need to get graphic with it—but I think you could understand the importance of collecting the evidence as soon as possible. You know things like DNA under your fingernails and you know vaginal swabs. Like you—you you want to—you don't want the stuff sitting. You want to get right. it as soon as possible.
2: Wow, you're the first person I've ever heard say this. i mean, i've 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 known that there was problems with the rape kits. I knew that, you know, like about a decade ago, at least they had them just like, stacked up and they weren't even processing them but i i didn't know this extra piece and and the other two things that you mentioned and they also may be of the same ilk where you're like well people can't actually vote for these things or anything they're just like initially proposed but it's worth mentioning at least um before you say how we can help you also talked about you know the the court green room that separates Mm -hmm. stalker stalking victims from their perpetrators and you mentioned the app with geo fencing that allows survivors to have a heads up before the storm that's, yeah, that's my baby.
3: Yeah, that's my baby. I've been advocating for that for 5 years.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So so how can people back some of your projects? I mean, or right some of the things you're doing. Yeah,
3: right now the best thing to do is follow me on social media and as I announce things because I'm doing so many things, right? It's like people also don't realize it's not like I'm literally in meetings with people from the DA's office like like all the time I'm on the board so I'm constantly trying to make things go but then there's there's so many things like for example even getting an app made like you can't just go oh I have a friend who builds apps I'll do it for free no the city has specific contracted people right so mm. every single thing there's some layer of bureaucracy so it's not that I'm like going oh I have a great idea let me tell every podcast or TV show that I do and I'm not it's not that at all it's that I'm working behind the scenes to do the things and there's all these things beyond my control to make it get to the next step. And so it's not that I don't want the public support. We should be talking about it. We should be asking for it, but it's not at the level where, you know what I mean? So just keep, just follow my social media. And as, as these things develop, I'll be able to point people to how they can participate or how they can get involved.
2: And is there any kind of stalking legislation or organization they can donate to?
3: Unfortunately, and I'm just going to be super real about it. Um, with stalking, the, the biggest organization is one called Spark. That's who gets like the DOJ grant. And Spark is really fabulous for awareness. So what they do is, you know, they let people know the statistics and kind of understanding it. But there aren't like a boots on the ground thing. So like, if you're being stalked, you can't hit up Spark and go help me like that's not what they do. So it's not a fully functional, you know, organization. So I I will just say that myself and some other advocates have been having meetings about creating one that would be national. So let's see if we go and do that, you know, or some of us might do ones in our individual state possibly, but like there isn't, there's a lot of really, for a lot of people, it's got DV overlap. So I would almost say like go to a DV place if that's your situation. But if you're like me and it's not a DV overlap, then you're kind of on your own. And that's why, honestly, that's why people find me because there's so many people who are like... There's no resource for me. What do I do?" And then they're just like Googling stalking where someone says, I know this girl. I watched a show or whatever. And the next thing you know, I'm on a call or a Zoom with them and I'm walking them through how to get the restraining order and what to do because uh, there's really nobody to my knowledge doing this. And if they are, I don't know, people come to me all the time. I guess me? I don't know. And
2: and it's so unfortunate that they're always commingling domestic violence with stalking because they don't always. Overlap is it's so sad that you have to be in a domestic you know, like still under the same roof with your perpetrator to more easily get some help. And even then I'm I'm sure it's uh
3: Yeah, and, and stalking not that is great. also so nuanced too, right? Like there's there's a lot of things to stalking that's different from other crimes, like with stalking, like like let's just say we're comparing it to sexual assault, right? With a sexual assault, the event happens, you've you've now had this traumatic event and then you can go and seek help and healing and you're working on it, right? With stalking, it's this ongoing thing. So you never, like, like me, like my stalker's getting out next week. This is 10 years deep. I've had 20 years to process my sexual assault and I'm in an okay place with it. My stalking is still ongoing. And so, you know, everybody's case is so different and so specific. And also there's a huge, like, the way that the laws are state by state, there's no uniformity, you know? So like, for example, in New York, which like we think of New York as like a very civilized state with their shit together. But let me tell you, in New York, If you send someone death or rape threats over electronic device, they're state court, so that's part of free speech, and they don't even see it as a crime. Or like, yeah, or like in Utah, for example, unless they've changed it, it's my understanding that they only like to give protective orders if you had, you know, a relationship with somebody. So someone like me, that my stalker was a stranger, like the judge would probably deny your protective order. Mm. So there's like a lot of like, every state has like got its own thing. And I'll just tell you, none of the laws are awesome because like law you know legislation and technology also are not operating at the same space so you know crimes like doxing and revenge porn and swatting and all this sort of like umbrella crime they can also come along with stalking because i always i always laugh because i also have autoimmune disorders i'm like stalking is like autoimmune it's like it's never just one thing it's like always multiple crimes it's like autoimmune is always like your body's doing 12 things to you at once
2: it's weird between what you're telling us now and then what is it prop 57 is mm-hmm, that the right mm-hmm. one you know where where supposedly they're letting loose you know some of these nonviolent criminals and and people just think it's picked up pickpocketing as yeah, you said yeah. but you know it's it also includes includes uh you know stalking and and sodomy when you're unconscious is yeah, that right yeah rape of an unconscious
3: person and forced sodomy human trafficking too because, because human trafficking is is done without violence. There's no violent element there.
2: Mm-hmm. See, the, the more you hold all at once, because, you know, you're my friend, so I talk to you all the time about this yeah. stuff. The more I hold, the more it, it kind of feels like law enforcement is in cahoots or something. Like they found these little secret ways to hide it and allow... This stuff to continue, it it it, it almost feels that way. I'm not saying that's true. I'm saying that's how it feels.
3: I think it's just it's just goes so deep. It goes so, so, so deep. And you know, the thing is there's also there's the law and then there's also application of the law. It's like a whole other thing, right? So we could use that, for example, in my experience where I had 4,000 restraining order violations. Any single one of those, he should have been arrested for. But they didn't go and look for him. You know what I mean? So there's laws. There's the application of the laws. There's people's perception of the laws. So it's like, you know, and then you've got technology outpacing, right? And so they're not quite sure what to do with these things. And then you have this vague nature of the way that laws are written. Like, for example, with stalking, it talks about credible threat. So, like, to give to give an example about that, my DA, when we were prosecuting my case, you know, I had all these, like, very graphic death threats about how he wanted to kill me with Zyklon B. And, like, you know, to me... If you're talking about crimes and you're kind of like on the spectrum and like obviously rape is horrible, but rape falls under murder, right? It's just like just under murder. That's what you would think. So you but my DA in particular said, Oh, he wants to kill you with Zyklon B. You know, I don't really know that he can get Zyklon B, but I do he goes, but I do believe he could rape you. in the exact words as he said, because he could use his penis like a weapon. And I was like, so do you see what I mean? So like it's even like with the prosecuting, it's like when you've got language like credible threat if they don't like cuz a lot of times when people threaten you it's kind of conditional like if you cheat on me one more time i'm going to blow your brains out well like for example they probably wouldn't prosecute that because that's not saying i'm going to blow your brains out it's conditional saying if you do this i'll do that and they would just like throw it away it's really weird like there's lots wow. of like lots of weird things in the language that like yeah
1: do you have you know being solutions oriented do you have any sort of idea um, what law enforcement can do because right now they're not helping oh, stalking oh, survivors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like what could be put in place? Do you, do you envision an overhaul of the whole system? As a matter or- of fact,
3: I do. And my partner, Jess Gilbert, at the Innovative Jess Alliance, that's like one of our side projects, we've created an entire stalking task force proposal, which we've had meetings with Schiff and the DA and everybody else about. And so it's a multi-tier program where the way that we see it, what we think needs to happen is you need to install forensic psychologists at police departments. And these are people who are specialized. Here's the thing, and I'm not like, no shade to cops, but unless you're trained in this specific area, you don't understand the psychology and motivation and behavior of a stalker. It's just a very nuanced thing. It's not their their area of expertise. So what I want to see is a case comes in It gets reviewed by the forensic psychologist who then properly evaluates it. If they do believe this person is at risk, they are then red flagged. And the city would then put together a care team for them where you would have like first dispatch to the home doing security walkthroughs and be like, you know, maybe you'd partner with someone like Ring or something like that or, you know, and then you'd kind of be like, okay, like you need to cut the bushes here, you need to put a light here, you need to put a sensor here, you know, and then also have somebody who walks them through their tech because so much of these crimes now it falls into, into tech and be like, okay, you know, like don't. Click on you know links that are suspicious. They may get the GPS on your phone. Oh, we found a tracker on your car, kind of doing all of that. Teaching them the risk minimization. Because look, there's a man who's tried to kill and rape me for a decade, and he hasn't even come close because I've done all the things, which isn't to victim blame somebody who something has happened. I'm just saying, I look, I look at it like a condom. Condoms are what, 97% effective, I think is a statistic. I'm lowering my risk. It's, there's things that are going to happen, but I'm doing everything I can to protect myself as much as possible. And so what we're not doing is we're not properly evaluating these cases. So people aren't getting the help that they need. We're not teaching them what to do. And we're certainly not intervening like intervening early enough. And then that's why, like, that it comes down to it's an eventual homicide, which they don't even – like, you know, sort of categorized as having a stalking element. So we're not even seeing the real problem. But anyway, getting back to it, yes, there's, I, I could totally break down to you also, you know, early intervention in schools, teaching about boundary and consent and really getting the kids early so that we don't encourage behavior, which then eventually graduates into stalking. Like there's so much we could be doing. We've outlined entire programs, we've done the budget for them. That's what I'm saying. I'm working on all of these things, but like I'm not. I'm not a multimillionaire to do them. I, I need, I need the city to give me money to do these things. So, <sighs>
2: mm-hmm. yeah, you were, you were talking about children and, you know, one thing, the more I started to learn about stalking, you know, I had worked with sexual abuse and sexual molestation, but it's really been in the last few years where I'm getting more and more clients that are being stalked. Maybe it's a combination of how social media is exploding. Maybe yeah. it's because more and more I get clients that are in the public eye. It's probably a combination of factors, but it's been more and more on my, in, in my view. And, And so I went through a phase where I was asking a lot of my clients, my, you know, usually those who identify as women, when you were a kid, did anyone teach you about boundaries, both with, you know, teaching you how to assert yourself verbally, but also teaching you how to set boundaries physically. Or defend yourself physically. And regardless of whether I was talking to a client in their early 20s or a client in their 60s, it did not matter what generation they were from. The answer was always the same. The answer was always no. I was taught to be amenable, kind, giving, a giver. I was not taught to defend myself either through words or through protecting my body. And so the second conversation that would happen so often is, you know, they would connect the dots as to, you know, in these situations where they're out on a date and a guy is trying to push through their boundaries and their training is to please. That's what their parents have taught them. That's what the world has taught them. And so even so, so they don't, they have a tendency not to fight or to run, but to, to please. And then they end up, you know, not, not saying it's their fault. I'm not blaming the victim. I'm just saying that if, you know, a, a program was put in place, like you're suggesting, that from the time kids were in kindergarten, first year, you know, whatever's age appropriate, all the way up that you're teaching kids these basics in a class, along with other basic, you know, uh, learning how to meditate, learning how to ground yourself, learning basic psychological things, we would have a different world.
3: Yeah, totally. And then building on top of that too, you know, another thing and everything I'm about to present is purely anecdotal. Like I'm not coming from, you know, a a study. This is just what I've witnessed. I've noticed that a lot of people come to me for help. They are survivors of earlier trauma. And, you know, there's so many times people will come to me and they'll be like, I can't believe this is happening to me. I'm finally at an okay place with my, you know, early childhood sexual assault or whatever it is. And at first I was going, okay, what's going on with this? Is it just because, you know, people, are victimized more than we realize, these repeat traumas. And again, I'm not in any way victim-blaming, but I have a lot of theories about, you know, these predators. And it's sort of very similar to if we think about people as the animal kingdom, right? You're out in the world, you see an injured gazelle, and what does a predator animal go for? They go for that one. So I'm wondering if perhaps, kind of building on what you're saying, Kate, you know, also those of us who've already been victimized, maybe there's something with our um, inability to understand boundaries because we had them, you know, push so early on. And so we didn't really form healthy ideas about boundaries when we were young. Right. So there's possibly that maybe we let people into our lives or we don't see the red flags, you know, act upon them. Um, maybe it's even something with a body language. You know, a lot of us who have had early trauma, there's a sort of like an anxiety or a vulnerability or just sort of a way that we carry ourselves, and I, you know, it's like they smell it like blood in the water. So I think I think really creating self esteem and boundaries, you know, for certain, you know, for everybody is really going to help. As well as I don't want the burden. And again, if we're just sort of separating it for gender for a moment. Because it's stalking, stalking, and this stuff happens to everybody, but it does overwhelmingly happen to women. So, like, I I acknowledge that, Um, but I, I definitely think that, you know, we also the burden's always on the victim, right? It's always like, what can we do to protect ourselves? But it also it also needs to go to the potential offenders and be like, how can you get your shit right, and how can you act properly, and how can you not commit crimes? And so, I think that's another big thing with early intervention that we don't really see in schools, you know. So.
2: Right, right. Like, yeah, it, it, we wouldn't have rape. You know, rape wouldn't happen if rapists you know, stopped raping. Yeah, right. Yeah, like shifting, shifting the focus. I agree. And and honestly, just you know, I'm starting to move away from thinking that. I do think of the more a woman has boundaries, the more she can assert her boundaries both physically and, and, and through her words, she can protect herself better. But it, what I've noticed is that there's some women that will talk about this more. The more conservative the woman, the more likely she's, she is to not even realize she's been raped or stalked, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the more likely she is to have friends that tell her that it was her fault yeah. and to have family to tell her that she needs to just get over it. And so when she comes to therapy, it may be way later in life. She may be way slower to divulge it to me, Um, like all of that. So sometimes I think that, um, I, I don't know, I've just gotten to the point where I feel like you know all of this stuff is a pandemic and a lot of the, the reason it seems like it's happening more to one type of woman than the other is because some women are more vocal about it and other women especially if they come from really conservative backgrounds are very slow to even realize it's happened to them
3: yeah and you know? and to hit that nail on the head like another reason why i'm very clear to say anecdotally it's also entirely possible that i'm talking about a population that would seek me out right so it's like the, right. so like only like a certain kind of person is going to come find me and that super conservative individual probably isn't going to reach out to me. So that that's entirely possible. That's what that is as well. So that that is sure. I'm very open to that idea as well.
2: Yeah. So, so along the same lines of what we've been talking about, those who end up getting stalked usually identify as women predominantly, although all genders can be stalked. And you've been described as the Erin Brockovich of stalking. Yeah. And I'm just wondering... How would you advise women to support women at the grassroots level?
3: How do I advise women to support women?
2: Yeah, because I think that, I mean, maybe this is the feeling that I get is that women are so scared of stalking that if another woman's being stalked, sometimes they probably avoid it like the plague. I don't know. I mean maybe you mean, you mean like as far I as mean, as far as
3: listening is that is that what you mean or
2: do you mean uh- I don't I, well yeah we certainly can listen rather than running away on any level do you feel like there's ways that women can support women that maybe they're not doing a good enough job with or
3: I would like to see less victim blame. I mean, I definitely, like, I experienced that myself, like, when I went public in 2015. And remember, I went public not for fun. I I was already getting media. Like, if I wanted attention, i just walk out my door. Like, attention is not something that I'm seeking. I really thought I was going to get killed, and I was terrified, and nobody was helping me, and I was just desperate to, like, elevate my profile so that law enforcement would give a shit about me or somebody would come help me. So I'm not in a great place. And then I go and I do my first interview, and, like, I remember getting all these tweets going dress how you want to be addressed and like picking me apart and what was horrifying to me was the majority of the people doing that were women it wasn't like I and I'm sorry, I just expect more from women. It was like really I was like, okay, I expect some shitty dudes, but like women were doing that. So I really, I really need to see that go away because I can't handle that anymore. It's like we're we're all we all gotta support each other. So um, i I have a feeling that listeners of your show do not participate in that awful behavior because they're fans of you guys. But just as like a general rule, I I, I need to see women not victim blaming and shaming others. Like I just it's too upsetting
2: yeah and i and i realize on some level i asked this question about women supporting women just because i don't really see men even understanding a lot of times they don't even understand stalking enough to Help in the way they should. So I think I'm just catching myself right now that I shouldn't be just asking this question about women supporting women. That's just showing how, (laughs) how some sometimes even me, you know, even like, I mean, here we are, we're all like really liberal, open minded people. I shouldn't give up on men. Like, what should men be doing? I shouldn't give up on men. Men should be helping with this too. Men should be waking up. Yeah, you know, men
3: need to be talking. Look, like they they see what their what their bros are doing, and they need to intervene when they see bad behavior, and like cut that locker room shit out. You know, it's like they they're 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 right there too. And you know, I'm sick of this. Like, I've definitely had guys that I like and respect in my life who you know they're like you know there'll be allegations from someone in like our our social mix right and i'll hear them say oh but that guy is like such a nice guy he would never do that i need i need that to go away as well you know i just it's like listen Two people, listen to them. Because if we're just purely going off of stats, like they say less than 3% are false accusations. So just mathematically, I'm not even talking about being a decent person. I'm just saying mathematically, the odds are that the person is telling the truth. Now, I'm talking about being a decent person, be a decent goddamn person. You know, So many people that you love and know have been harmed in this way. So it's also really painful for us to hear other people casually speculating about someone's situation or accusation. It's like we're sitting right here and we've had that same kind of harm done and it's just like it affects us all. So I just I just need men. And it's like, you know what, men, if you don't know what to say, you can just shut up and listen. That's an, that's an option too. Like we don't we don't need you to like weigh in, you know, where you really kind of maybe like just, you know, just listen. Like I, I would like to see that.
2: I, I have to just tag on to that one part because um, I've heard – Everybody say this, men, women, where they'll say, oh, that person's such a nice person. They'd never do that. But the thing is, like, if people understood psychology a little bit better, they'd understand there's a lot of people who have different ego states or they present one way around this group of people and they're completely different behind closed doors. It's like just because someone's kind to you does not mean that behind closed doors or with a different person, they don't shift into a different way of being.
1: Yeah, and you
2: know? Absolutely. Yeah, and it's just the fact that we still don't know that basic piece of psychology after all these decades of seeing it over and over again in crime shows, et cetera, it, it, it's very frustrating. Mm-hmm. You know, this is like a basic thing to know,
1: you know? huh So, Lenora, right now, a lot of TV show producers, movie producers, directors, et cetera, are really invasive in their treatment of stalking survivors, and they've already endured so much invasiveness from their perpetrators, and sure. the legal process etc so when and not if but when uh Netflix hires Lenora Claire Consulting LLC <laughs> yes uh, how do you see their shows shifting as a result of yeah consultation I
3: mean one of the things I'd love to do like specifically since you is such a huge show there's a lot of things they get right and a lot of things they get wrong but I'd love to create like bonus interstitial programs because people binge watch so much. I'd love to be able to like just put little like 15 second bits of information in between the shows. Um, but a lot of things, there's a lot that people don't understand about stalking, right? So just just to have the opportunity to like be anywhere near writer's room would be incredible because unfortunately, so many people get their sort of like information about what crimes are like or what it's like from, from these like law and order shows, right? And so they have this like idea and it's like I wish everything was neatly wrapped up in a bow. I wish that like every police officer slept at the police station just trying to solve your crime. Like you have these like really weird or even like one of the things I notice that when I'm like helping people get restraining orders and we've done like the temporary one which you you have to do first and you go back to get the longer one, they'll ask me questions like, well there you know, what will the jury be like? I'm like it's a restraining order here. There's no jury. Like I realize that people just have really weird ideas about, you know, what it's like to go through these experiences. So, you know, you could actually make it really informational and really helpful to people who are seeking out these programs because they might be in that place themselves, they're trying to like kind of test it out and feel and learn things and then also, you know, not put out potentially destructive ideas to people who don't know about the crime and, you know, which, which I see a lot too. I see a lot of misinformation with stalking specifically. And I'm always just like, that's not true. Like, please stop saying that. So, yeah.
2: Yeah. And, and everything else you said in the previous episode, there's so many ideas that, and so many things that Lenora Consulting LLC is, is offering and anybody listening, if you're curious, you know, she's got a website now with a dream team together, check it out. There's like so many things that Lenora Consulting LLC is, is offering let's see so this is the last question so before steve severin Stephen severin from Susie and the banshees wished you away to london when you were young you were super young weren't you yeah i was of age but i was young yeah you had dreams originally to be a film director right yeah that was like my teenage dream yeah your teenage dream and and those dreams got diverted by that relationship, if I recall, and that was pretty upsetting to you. I remember you saying that at some point, but now it seems those dreams may be manifesting in a new kind of way, despite everything that you've been through, perhaps maybe through the documentary that's that's in the works right now. And you might uh, tell us a little bit about that Yeah. and also potentially having your own You know, this is something you're batting around, having your own production studio that may organically arise as a byproduct of your new LLC. Like, how do you feel about like those directing dreams re manifesting in this new way? I mean, my life's so
3: weird, like anything is possible, so i you know what I mean? Like, I just like, sure. But yeah, the, the, the dream director I have attached to my documentary, I had told him how awful and how much I hate whenever there's recreation, reenactments on crime shows, and I said, please don't do that in ours. And then he had a really, I don't want to give the way, but he had a really genius idea that would you know, potentially involve me directing them. Um, and it just, like, I, that had not occurred to me because he was also inspired by the fact that that was, like, my original dream. You know, listen, I, I love I love art and film and storytelling and, you know, all of those things. And if it is something I get to do, you know, a million years after the original, that's great, like, why not? Um, but either way, I'm going to keep, you know, uplifting people and educating people and helping their stories get told in whatever medium. And, you know, also things are shifting, right? So we have all these new platforms and all these new ways to tell stories. So I, I'm just kind of, who knows what we're going to be watching in 10 years or how we're going to be consuming programming. So you just kind of have to go with it.
2: Yeah, that I, I can't wait i love just watching your life unfold so lenora thank you so much for sharing your journey it, it, it's one that would make john waters proud and i'm sure he's probably told you as much uh and and you're just getting started it's a life of color celebrating the weird and the wonderful You've turned your past crises into a calling that has helped so many survivors of stalking and will continue to do so. So thank you for all that you do to help this world. Yeah. And we wish you the very best in all your amazing upcoming endeavors. Thank you. And listeners, we invite you to join us again soon when we once again dare to open deeply.
0: Thank you for listening. Find us online at opendeeplypodcast.com and on social media at Kate Marie or at Sunny Megatron. Check back bi-weekly for new episodes and until next time, remember, your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply. Intro and outro voice by the queen goddess, Frenchie Davis. Intro and outro music by the Baltimore Bull, Rob